Now, when I say heresy, I don't use that term lightly. I, I mean it in the fullest sense of the word. Heresy is an opinion, a doctrine, or practice that drastically differs from established and accepted beliefs that are essential for salvation. And their beliefs are extremely different than those historically held by Christians. And from the beginning of the establishment of the church, you know, different false beliefs have sprang up and uh, threatened orthodoxy, and the leaders of the church had to stand up and denounce these things as heresy. So today I stand before you to denounce progressive Christianity as heresy and to show you how it's straying from the gospel has huge implications for how people live. So we're going to be referring to Galatians 1 during our time together this morning. And in his letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul warns them about being deceived by false teaching and turning to another gospel. So starting in verse 3, Galatians 1 says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul doesn't start this letter with a prayer of thanksgiving for his recipients like he typically does in other letters. And the reason is because these, these Galatian churches had turned to another or different gospel. And in Greek, there are two different words that we translate as another. One is heteros, which means another of a different kind, while the word alas means another of the same kind. And Paul uses both in verses 6 and 7. So it could be paraphrased like this. I'm astonished you're turning to a heteros gospel, a gospel of a different kind, even though there is not an alas gospel, a gospel of the same kind as the one I preach to you. So what he's saying is that another gospel is no gospel because there is no other gospel. Another gospel is no gospel because there is no other gospel. In her book, Another Gospel, Elisa Childers outlines three doctrines essential to historic Christianity that progressive Christians have altered. They're the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the cross, and the doctrine of of the gospel. And we'll look at the real dollar bill, the historic view of each of these doctrines that go all the way back to Jesus himself, and then we're going to look at the counterfeit bills presented by Christianity, or progressive Christianity. And by being familiar with the authentic, we'll easily be able to identify the counterfeit. So the foundational piece of this whole discussion concerns our view of the Bible. What we decide about the Bible has massive effects on what we believe about other aspects of Christianity. 
And it's clear just from a brief survey that historically Christians believe that the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant word of God. This means that they originated with God and are the words that he wanted to be communicated. So when in a discussion with the Pharisees about who the Christ is, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and says that David spoke by the Spirit. And what he's saying is that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote those words. It wasn't just David's words to God. It was actually God's word through his Holy Spirit working with man to communicate his word. And as we'll see, this is a stark contrast to what progressive Christians think about the Bible as primarily a limited human writing. Elsewhere throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus using the phrase, it is written. And Bible scholar John Wenham says, it is clear that Jesus understood it is written to be equivalent to God says. It is written means God says. So Jesus and his apostles over and over again use this phrase to quote the Old Testament because they believed it was God-inspired. And the Apostle Paul also wrote about the divine inspiration of Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we have Jesus, who is God, and Paul, to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection, affirming the inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures. And concerning the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul actually quotes the Gospel of Luke as scripture. Then, Peter, in his second letter, says that Paul's writings are scripture. So they're saying, hey, we're all writing God's word to you. We're all writing God's word. And, and not only this, but the early church leaders after the apostles also affirmed Scripture's inspiration. Irenaeus was a second century early church leader, and he says this, The Scriptures are indeed perfect, since they were spoken by Christ and by His Spirit. So clearly from the very beginning, Scripture was seen as inspired by God. And if it's God's word... It's inerrant because as Paul says in Titus 1-2, God never lies. So let's compare this historical orthodox understanding of the Bible to that of progressive Christianity. So they believe the Bible is inspiring and error-ridden because it's primarily a human book. So Peter Enns, a leader of progressive thought, says the Bible is the story of God told from the limited point of view of real people living at a certain place in time. And something that's important to note is that progressives will use words that have historically been defined one way, and they'll redefine them to mean something else. So, for instance, we as Christians believe that God revealed himself to humanity over time. This is called progressive revelation. God revealed himself to Abraham, then to Moses and David and the other prophets, revealing more and more of himself to them. And then God's ultimate revelation of himself was in the incarnation of Jesus, fully God, fully man. 
And Hebrews testifies to this at the very beginning. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. So God fully showed himself in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Brian McLaren, arguably the leader of progressive Christianity, would argue that we have a higher and wiser view of God now because we're more evolved than the people of the Bible. So we're still making progress on our understanding of God, hence the name progressive Christianity. And the ways that God is presented in the Old and New Testament are limited because of the historical and cultural environment in which the writers found themselves. So, essentially, due to their cultural and intellectual limitations, they got it wrong about God. Though well-intentioned, they were bound to misunderstand And the conclusion is that the Bible is not God's word to us, but rather human beings' words about God. Therefore, they reject divine inspiration, as been historically understood. They'll say, we believe that the Bible is inspired, but in the same way that C.S. Lewis's writings are inspired, or are inspiring. When we say progressive revelation, we mean God continues to build on truth previously established. Whereas they say progressive revelation means moving from ancient errors to modern truth. That's a huge difference in definition. Huge. And another way in which they stray from historic doctrine of the Bible is that they believe it's error-ridden, has errors throughout it. And after all, these, these are writings from thousands of years ago, and we don't have the original copies. So how can we know what they originally said? Because the copies that we have have thousands, hundreds of thousands of errors in them. And the more questions and uncertainty they can bring up surrounding the Bible, they can make it a lot less absolute in what it says. So since we're unsure about what the Bible says, then we can make it say whatever we want to because we are in authority over the Bible rather than the Bible being in authority over us. And here's the problem with these claims. They are absolutely, unequivocally, 100% false. And they've been disproven over and over and over again. And I don't have time to get into all the details, but in summary, we have more copies of the New Testament that are dated closer to the original writings than any other ancient document in the history of the world. And the consensus among scholars, from atheistic to Christian, is that the Bible we have has been recorded with over 99% accuracy. And the areas of uncertainty affect no major Christian doctrine. So contrary to what progressives say, we do know what the writers said, because it's right here in front of our face. We have it right here. So clearly we can see that progressives have another Bible, a counterfeit Bible. And since they have this understanding of the Bible, they go wrong in other areas, and one of them being their understanding of the cross. Now, obviously the cross is essential to Christianity. On a hill 
outside of Jerusalem called the Place of the Skull, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully man, was crucified on a cross. And from beginning of Christianity, the essential doctrine surrounding the cross was that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for the sins of humanity, in our place as a substitute. And this doctrine can easily be summed up in the phrase penal substitutionary atonement. It's an easy one, right? Penal substitutionary atonement. Let's, let's break it down for us. The word penal means a penalty or punishment. So this means that Jesus had to endure the punishment or pay the penalty for our sins. And after all, God is just and he must carry out his justice on sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to it as the moral judge of the universe. The second part, substitutionary, refers to the fact that Jesus took our place when he died on the cross. He was our substitute. He stood in for us. We should have been the one that die, ones that died, but he willingly took our place. And atonement means to repair and restore the relationship with God that was broken by sin. And the only way this could have happened was through the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices of animals was made for the atonement of sins. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. And then in Hebrews 9, which interacts a lot with Leviticus, it says, It's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which is why Christ had to come as a sacrifice so that sins of humanity could be atoned for. So my hope is that the next time you hear the phrase PSA, you won't think public service announcement, but you'll think uh, penal substitutionary atonement, which is an essential, essential doctrine for Christians. However, this doctrine can be traced throughout the entire New Testament, contrary to what progressives believe. Jesus himself said, I came as a ransom for the sins of many. Actually, in our passage in Galatians, right here, verse 3, Paul makes a reference to this doctrine. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. And numerous creeds have been identified in the New Testament that encapsulate important doctrines that were easy to pass on. And arguably the earliest one is found in 1 Corinthians 15, which scholars date back to within two years of Jesus' resurrection, very early. And Paul says this to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to list all the witnesses that Jesus appeared to. So Paul makes it very clear that Jesus died for our sins just like the scriptures, which to him was the Old Testament, required. So PSA goes back to the very beginning of Christianity and was at the very heart of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And this has always been seen as a beautiful act of God's love, grace, and justice. God himself taking the penalty upon himself for the sins of human beings. However, 
progressive Christianity completely rewrites the narrative of the cross. When commenting on progressive Christian view of the cross, Elisa Childers says, despite the abundance of biblical testimony, the one thing that virtually all progressive Christians agree on is that Jesus didn't die to pay the penalty for our sin. According to progressive Christians, this historic view makes God nothing more than an abusive father. And here we have what they call the doctrine of the cosmic child abuser. They're repulsed by the idea that God would require a blood sacrifice of his son and paint God as a temperamental father who beats his innocent son in a blind rage. To make the doctrine of the cross easier to accept, they say that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't to satisfy the wrath of God, but of humans. To satisfy our wrath. After all, Jesus was crucified by an angry mob, And his love and forgiveness towards the people who killed him is an example that we all should follow in terms of forgiveness. They would reduce the atonement down to just a moral example of how we should try to live in this world. And another progressive leader, Richard Rohr, says this about the cross. I believe that Jesus' death on the cross is a revelation of infinite and participatory love of God. Not some bloody payment required by God's offended justice to rectify the problem of sin. There was no transaction necessary. There was not a blood sacrifice necessary. Again, they're using language that was historically used one day in redefining it. Because Christians have always seen what Jesus did on the cross as an act of love. However, we've also seen it as an act of God carrying out his justice on an unblemished sacrifice in the perfect person of Jesus Christ. And labeling the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross to satisfy God's wrath as cosmic child abuse is just emotional and rhetorical manipulation that doesn't actually reflect anything close to what Christians have believed from the beginning. And let me say something, that child abuse is horrendous and evil. And it's continually on the rise in our society, in all forms. And when a child is abused, it's not something they willingly choose to participate in. It's never a person's fault when they're abused, especially a child. To say that Jesus was God the Father's abused child or whipping boy grossly distorts the story of the cross. And here's why. When Jesus went to the cross, he did so willingly. In John 10, 17 through 18, he says, this is Jesus speaking, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. No one takes my life. I lay it down, and I take it back up. Going back to Galatians, it says, He gave himself for our sins. So clearly Jesus wasn't some unwilling son that went kicking and screaming to the cross, dragged there by his abusive father. No, he chose to give up his life as a sacrifice in accordance with the will of the father. The cross 
is the climactic intersection in history of perfect love and perfect justice in the person of Jesus Christ. So obviously, progressive Christian heresy got the doctrine of the cross wrong also. They have another cross, a counterfeit cross. And when you end up with another Bible and another cross, you ultimately end up with another gospel. The word gospel means good news. From the beginning, the good news of Christianity has been understood as salvation from sin and separation from God to a redeemed relationship with him that will be enjoyed forever. The story of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the best news anyone could ever hear because it means that our biggest problem is solved, the problem of sin. And from the beginning of the biblical narrative, we see that sin is a huge issue that God takes very seriously because he is a holy God. When there is ongoing sin without repentance, we see over and over again God acting in judgment. The flood of Noah, the confusion of the languages at the Tower of Babel, Israel wandering in the wilderness, the exile of Israel after their fall to Assyria and Babylon. These are just some of the acts of judgment that God justly brings on humans. Even his own chosen people, his own chosen people, God is so holy and so just that he can't turn a blind eye to the sins of his chosen people. So he must carry out judgment. So it's clearly not contrary to God's character to bring judgment. And actually, it's very much in line with who he is, as we see. So from the beginning of Christianity, this is what the gospel has looked like. There's one God who created heaven and earth. This God spoke through the writers of the Old Testament about the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, born in the line of King David, to the Virgin Mary. Jesus is creator. He's the creator who came into the world as God in flesh. He came to bring salvation and redemption for all who would believe in him. Jesus physically suffered and was crucified under the historical person, Pontius Pilate. Raised bodily from the dead and ascended to his exalted position at the right hand of the Father. And he will ultimately return to judge the world. That is the grand narrative of the Bible and ultimately of human history. And in the end, Jesus will return in judgment to separate those who have believed in his name from those who have not. Those who have trusted in Jesus will receive eternal life, while those who have not will receive eternal judgment, which is eternal separation from the presence of God. This is what we mean when we say heaven and hell. And I don't like the concept of hell. The fact that there's people that are going to be separated from God for all eternity, when I actually think about it, makes me nauseous. It makes me sick to my stomach to think about that. And when we were at council at the beginning of this month, 
which is the Christian Missionary Alliance's international conference every two years, um, we were going over our statement of faith, so the things that we as a denomination believe. And while the secretary of the committee was reading through the statement of faith, he came to the section about the eternal destination of those who die without putting their faith in Christ. And he began to cry. And I will never forget that. That it broke him to say that there will be human beings lost forever. And if talking about hell does not move us emotionally to compassion for the lost, then we truly have not grasped the concept or reality of hell. However, we also cannot conveniently discard the doctrine of hell because it's part of the gospel and Jesus spoke very extensively on this topic throughout his life. Just read Matthew 25 to see what I mean. Jesus believed in hell and if we're following him, we must also. And here's why. If we aren't separated from our sin, then our sin will keep us separated from God. That's the thing about hell. There's, there's no freedom from sin. There's no freedom. God must deal with evil, and hell will be the final quarantine of all evil. None of this is pretty, but all of this is the gospel. So we can't give in to cultural pressures to abandon what's clearly been said about the gospel. However, this is exactly what progressives do with their version of the gospel. To them, the biggest problem facing humanity is oppression, not sin. Therefore, there's a heavy emphasis on social improvement or social justice. And I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in these kind of things. And in fact, I think we need to be more involved in our communities. However, the corrupt social structures aren't the biggest problem. It's the corrupt human hearts that are naturally bent towards sin and self that run the social structures that are the problem. So they mistakenly believe that in a moral sense, humans are primarily good, which is in clear conflict with the biblical teaching that we're fallen morally from birth. And if we're honest, we know from experience that people aren't inherently good. Perfect example, parents. You know that you didn't have to teach your children to say no or mine, right? What you did have to teach them is to say yes and also the virtue of sharing with others. And we see this from the very beginning of, of life that we are not inherently good morally. Our essence is good as image bearers of God, but morally we're fallen. So this mistake about human nature helps us understand why there's such a focus on social improvement. Sin in the human heart isn't the issue. It's the oppressive structures of society that keep people down. However, if you change the social structures without changing the human hearts within the structures, you're bound to have another oppressor. It's common sense. That's what's going to happen. And also, since human beings aren't inherently sinful, 
by their narrative. There's no need to be saved. And on top of that, there's no need for this imaginary place called hell where people will go for eternity in order to be punished for their unpaid for and unforgiven sin. Rather, as Rob Bell, the author of Love Wins, says, hell just becomes the experience of evil on earth. That hell is just the evil we experience on earth. It's not a real place. And another progressive pastor, Brian Zahn, chimes in, saying something like, Jesus certainly did not lay the foundation for an afterlife theology that claims all non-Christians go to hell. This has become a common way of thinking about heaven and hell. Christians go to heaven, non-Christians go to hell. And here's what he says. But it is not based on anything Jesus ever said. Matthew 13 Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And here's the thing. Sometimes we get parables and Jesus doesn't explain it immediately. The next sentences, Jesus explains exactly what he's talking about. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think it's safe to say that Brian Zahn was wrong. And do you see now why the Apostle Paul had such strong words for the Galatians who had strayed from the gospel? He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, which he's referring to the sentence previously before this one, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. A false gospel puts souls at stake. And this is one of the most deceptive things about progressive Christians. They come off very loving and compassionate and encouraging. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, when talking about false teachers. Such people are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise of his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So in the end, they're actually some of the most unloving people, and here's why. Their definition of love is to accept what everyone does no matter what. Love means approving of everyone or everything someone does. But the biblical definition of love is to look out for the best interests of others. And ultimately, what's in everyone's best interest is to acknowledge that they have turned from God and need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay for the penalty of their sin to bring about new life within them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what's in everyone's best interest, to acknowledge that fact. And 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, nor is it resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. And if we truly love others, we cannot rejoice in their wrongdoing. 
because it separates them from God. And we have to be humble in doing this, knowing that we need the same forgiveness and grace for our wrongdoing. So in other words, progressive Christianity has got the wrong gospel. They have another gospel, a counterfeit gospel. And a counterfeit gospel has zero, no power to save. So we've seen now that progressive Christianity has strayed from historic Christianity on three essential doctrines. The doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the cross, and the doctrine of the gospel. They've come up with their own versions and interpretations of each in order to make it easier to accept. And we must be on guard against these heresies in our lives, in our families, in our church. We need to be so familiar with the real thing that any counterfeit currency that comes by our way that's trying to be passed along as a real thing can be immediately identified. Know what you believe or be deceived. Know what you believe or be deceived. And there's a lot at stake here. Risking people's eternity is not compassionate. As a part of the alliance, we are seeking to bring the gospel of salvation, redemption from, to the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. And progressive Christianity completely undermines this movement. We must stand firm on the truth of God's word and reject progressive Christianity as heresy. We will waver, we will waver if our goal is to win the approval of man. But this brings us to verse 10 of Galatians 1 where Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of Man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Progressive Christians aren't serving Christ because they've rejected him and his teaching. They have created another gospel. But remember, another gospel is no gospel because there is no other gospel.